It's my pleasure to introduce Professor Peter Irons. He's someone who has played an important role in this university, this college, Thurgood Marshall College, and plays an important role in the lives of Thurgood Marshall students in that he is one of the architects and one of the instructors in our core course, Dimensions of Culture. In particular, his teaching in the Doc 2, the Justice Quarter. Professor Eines received his PhD from Boston University and was obviously not satisfied with simply having a simple academic intellectual career and went on immediately to take a JD degree at Harvard University. His uh, important publications, at least those publications he may be speaking about this evening, are New Deal Lawyers and the important work he did in the Kuramatsu case which was revealed in his book the courage of their convictions. Those of you who are doc students are very likely to be reading passages of that book next term. His most recent book, Jim Crow's Children, is the subject of his talk tonight. I would like to introduce to you my friend, my colleague, Professor Peter Irons. I want to thank Cecil for that very kind introduction. I think, in fact, that I'm the oldest living doc faculty member um, going way, way back. I've been at this university now for 21 years, which uh, seems forever. But um, one of the things, in fact, probably the thing that I'm most proud of during all that time was to play an instrumental role in naming Thurgood Marshall College um, after the death of Justice Marshall. And he's going to be a leading character in the talk I'll give this evening. Now, as you know, this is the 50th anniversary year of the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education. It's decided on May 17th of 1954, but all during this year leading up to and following that anniversary. There are going to be commemorative events all around the country. And as far as I've, I've made a list so far of over 100 of these events. And I've been invited to quite a few of them um, because of the work I've been doing in this field. And I met the other night with um, Cheryl Brown, who was one of the original plaintiffs in Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. And Cheryl told me that in the next three months she has 42 events that she's going to be attending. So it's a very it's a very busy time and one in which we're going to focus as a nation on this historic event in American history. Now most of these events, the ones that I've been to already and the ones that I'll be attending in the next several months are in fact commemorations. That is they talk about the historic nature of the Brown decision, what a wonderful and, and amazing decision it was, a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court ruling that racial segregation in public schools violated the Constitution. And in fact, there is much to commemorate about it. But at the same time, there is room for great concern about the legacy of Brown and what has happened in the past 50 years, what I call the silent reversal 
of the Brown decision by the Supreme Court. And that's what I'd like to focus on. And to underscore what I think is a major serious crisis in American society, that is the quality of education for members of racial minorities, particularly African Americans, but those of other minorities as well, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, and others. And the fact that we are slowly but surely losing the progress that was made since Brown in providing equal educational opportunity for all Americans. Now, the talk I'm going to give, uh, and I'm going to leave room, I hope, for um, questions. Well, I, I will leave room, but I hope you will have questions and comments on what I'm going to say, because it's important, I think, that uh, we begin a dialogue on these issues and ask the questions that concern us. Now, I want to talk about this book I wrote. It's called Jim Crow's Children, The Broken Promise of the Brown Decision. It came out about a year ago, and in fact, in a couple of months, it will be out in paperback, uh, much cheaper, and in a few months, it will actually be a TV documentary on Court TV. So it's a book that I'm, I'm proud of um, and that I spent a great deal of time working on. But I want to say a little bit first about why I wrote this book and what its roots are. And it really goes back um, to the beginning of my college career, uh, an age uh, that most of you are at or have just a few years past. In 1958, I started as a freshman, or what we called a first-year student, at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. How many of you have heard of Antioch? It's uh, not very many. My golly. Well, it's a small college, liberal arts college. It's in Yellow Springs, Ohio, in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by hundreds of miles of cornfields. But it's a very unique college. In fact, it was one of the first three colleges in this country back in the 1850s to admit African-American students. The other two were Oberlin College, in, uh, also in Ohio, the alma mater of Provost Lytle, and Berea College in Kentucky. All three were small colleges, and all three were founded by abolitionists. And the first president of Antioch College, and actually a very central figure in the whole course of American education, was Horace Mann. Now, Horace Mann is known as the father of American public education. He was the commissioner of education in Massachusetts beginning in the 1830s, set up the first system of public schools in this country. But Horace Mann was more than that. He was also a fervent abolitionist and a lawyer and became a member of Congress in the 1840s. And he ran for Congress to raise a voice against slavery in this country. But when he got to Washington, he discovered that the Southerners who controlled the Congress had passed what was called a gag rule. No member of Congress could raise the issue of slavery on the floor of the House or introduce a petition about it, and they were ruled out of order if they did. So Horace Mann became frustrated that his voice was not heard. And he left Congress and became president of Antioch College. Now, one of the things that most profoundly affected my life when I became a first-year student at Antioch was the 
stone monolith in front of the main building at Antioch. And it was a memorial to Horace Mann. And it included some words that he had spoken to the graduates of Antioch in 1858. This is just two years before the Civil War began. It was the last speech he ever gave. He died two weeks later. But in that speech, he said to the graduates of Antioch, be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. That was very, those are very inspiring words. And when I was at Antioch, there were inspiring people who lived out those words. And I'll never forget the very first demonstration that I ever took part in was in April of 1959 in Washington, D.C., five years after the court decided the Brown case. And this was called the Youth March for Integrated Schools. And the contingent from Antioch was led by a remarkable woman, African-American student at Antioch named Eleanor Holmes. And she really inspired me. In fact, Eleanor Holmes probably had more influence on my future career than anybody else. She is now a member of Congress from the District of Columbia, a non-voting member of Congress since D.C. is still denied statehood. But she is a powerful force in American society. Now Eleanor Holmes Norton. So I had a background of concern about these issues from the very first days of my college career. But I, and I was active in the civil rights movement, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and other civil rights groups, uh, the Freedom Summer of 1964. But it wasn't until I was in law school in 1977, I entered law school in 1975, an older student at the time. I had already gone through college, working in Washington for the Auto Workers Union, spending three years in federal prison for opposing the military draft because America still practiced racial segregation, and a PhD at Boston University, as the provost told you. But I decided to go to law school because I wanted to be able to use that training in talking about, writing about, and teaching about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and helping to educate not only my own students, but the nation at large about these issues. And in my second year of law school, I took constitutional law uh, with Professor Lawrence Tribe at Harvard, probably the leading constitutional law teacher in the country. And I remember reading the Brown cases. Every law student reads the Supreme Court decision in these cases. And one thing that struck me uh, as I read these cases, at the very bottom of the first page of Chief Justice Warren's opinion was a list of the companion cases. Now, Brown was not just one case. In fact, there were five separate cases decided together by the Supreme Court from five different communities around the country. And I noticed and was almost uh, shocked to learn that one of the school districts involved in the Brown cases, because the schools in that district were segregated by law, was the same district in which I was a student in elementary and junior high school 
in the early 1950s. And in 1954, when the, when the Brown case was decided, I was in a segregated school. And I had not known that at the time. It never occurred to me in the early 50s to think about where were the black kids who lived just down the road from us in Newcastle, Delaware, where did they go to school? And it wasn't until a few weeks ago, uh, preparing for a series of lectures like this one, that I found a picture of the school that these kids went to in a little hamlet called Buttonwood, right down the road from Newcastle, Delaware, in the same school district. Now, I went to school at William Penn Junior High School, very imposing brick building, um, several hundred students. We had, of course, cafeteria, gymnasium, science labs, uh, athletic fields. But I want to show you a picture of the school that the black kids went to in Buttonwood. And this is where they went to school. That's the Buttonwood Colored School. As you can see, it's not an imposing building. In fact, it's just a one-room wooden building. But at the time I went to school, I wasn't even conscious of the fact that the black kids in my community went to such a school. Now, obviously, this school was not equal to the one I attended. But at the time, the Supreme Court had said back in 1896 that all public facilities, railroad cars, movie theaters, restaurants, hotels, and public schools could be segregated by law under the doctrine of separate but equal. That is the decision in Plessy versus Ferguson. And it was obvious to everyone that the schools that black kids attended during most of this country's history were not equal. In fact, in the early days, for well over two centuries of our history, there were no schools for blacks in this country. In fact, let me read you just a, a couple of quotations by former slaves. These are people who lived in slavery before it was abolished in 1865, and they were interviewed years later about their life. And here's what a couple of them had to say. Arnold Gragston was a slave in Macon County, Kentucky, owned by a man named Mr. Tab. And he says, Mr. Tab was a pretty good man. He used to beat us, sure, but not nearly so much as others did. But when the master learned that slaves were learning to read and write, he'd call them to the big house. If we told him we'd been learning to read, he would near beat the daylights out of us. Sarah Benjamin, who was born on a Louisiana plantation, recalled the fate of fellow slaves whose masters discovered that their property had secretly learned to read and write. If you learned to write, they would cut your thumb or finger off. Now, it was against the law in every southern state in this country up until and through the Civil War to teach any slave to read and write. So those who arrived in this country in chains beginning in 1619 all the way through the middle of the 19th century were barred from any form 
of education. Now, as we know, the Civil War liberated the slaves. But the Civil War began, in large part, because of a decision by the Supreme Court in 1857, a case called Dred Scott versus Sanford. Dred Scott was a slave in Missouri who had sued to gain his freedom, arguing that he had lived for several years in free territory and could not be re-enslaved when he returned to Missouri. And he lost the case. The Supreme Court ruled that no person of African descent, whether free or slave, was a citizen of the United States. And in that decision, Chief Justice Roger Taney, himself a slave owner, and five other members of the Supreme Court, all of them slave owners from the South, ruled, as Taney said, that Africans are beings of an inferior order, so far inferior that they have no rights which the white man is bound to respect, and that they may be held in slavery justly and lawfully for their own benefit. Now, that's a very ironic statement. I doubt if any slave felt that uh, slavery was for his own benefit. But the point is that all the institutions of this country regarded African Americans as beings of an inferior order. And even after slavery ended and the 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868 to overturn the Dred Scott decision, ruling that all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens thereof and of the state wherein they reside. And they are entitled to life, liberty, and property and to the equal protection of the laws. But they didn't get that equal protection. Every southern state after the Civil War was over and Reconstruction ended in 1877, and the whites returned to power in all the former Confederate states, instituted the Jim Crow system. And under Jim Crow, everything, every institution in society was racially segregated. Now, there were schools set up for African Americans in most of these states. The whites who ran the plantations and factories realized that they needed a pool of cheap labor. But they needed labor that was at least uh, able at a rudimentary level to read and write and do simple arithmetic. And so schools were set up which were limited in their curriculum to the basics of reading and writing. Most of these schools, in fact, did not go beyond the sixth or the eighth grade. In fact, in 1930, there were only four accredited high schools for blacks in the entire South. So it was an elementary school education. And there was a reason for this. As I said, there were actually two reasons. One was plain and simple racism, which had not disappeared with the Civil War. And the other was the need for a pool of cheap labor. And that need persisted throughout the rest of the 19th and the first half of the 20th century. And the doctrine of Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, lasted until 1954. Now I want to talk about um, a, a remarkable person. In fact, 
some of you, many of you, I suspect, um, attend a college named after him, Thurgood Marshall. And Thurgood Marshall is really the one person most responsible for ending racial segregation in the United States. Now, Thurgood Marshall was born in Baltimore, Maryland, in 1908. His grandfather had been a slave in Virginia. His grandfather's name was Thorny Good Marshall, later changed to Thoroughgood and then to Thurgood. But Thorny Good Marshall had run away, escaped from slavery in Virginia, and gone to Baltimore. Uh, and after the war, it was no longer a slave state, but it was still a Jim Crow state. And Thurgood Marshall went to segregated schools. He attended what was then called Colored High School in Baltimore. It is now called Frederick Douglass School. Frederick Douglass, of course, was another escaped slave who became the leader of the anti-slavery movement in this country, um, also from Baltimore. And Douglas, Frederick Douglass gave his name to this school. Now, when Thurgood Marshall attended Colored High School, it was, in fact, a good institution. It was the school from which the largest number of blacks went on to college in the entire state of Maryland. But I want to tell you something just very briefly about Colored High School, or what now Frederick Douglass High School. Because last week in Baltimore, um, and I've been traveling, living out of a suitcase for the last month, traveling around the country, but last week I was in Baltimore, and I visited Frederick Douglass High School. Now I'm going to tell you a couple of things which I will return to later in this talk. Because Frederick Douglass High School represents what has happened to the education for a huge number of African American students in this country over the last three or four decades. Now Frederick Douglass High School currently has 1,191 black students and seven white students. In the ninth grade, there are 459 students. In the twelfth grade, there are 189. In other words, 60% of the kids who enter in the ninth grade at Frederick Douglass never graduate. They drop out. And of those who do graduate, their academic performance is well below any national standard. For example, last year, the cumulative SAT score for those students who in fact did complete Frederick Douglass High School and who took the SAT hoping to go to college, the cumulative total of verbal and math scores was 641. Now, 641 on the SAT, as I'm sure you all know, is not going to get you into Harvard or, in fact, into any decent college. These are kids who are consigned to that pool of cheap labor, most of them for the rest of their lives, many of them, in fact, winding up in other institutions, such as America's prisons, which now have two million African-American inmates. Now, I mention this because Thurgood Marshall started out in a school system that rewarded black kids who were intelligent, hardworking, and ambitious. 
He went on to Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, also an all-black institution, and then wanted to become a lawyer and applied to the University of Maryland Law School in his home state. But that was a segregated school, and they would not admit him. So he wound up at Howard University in Washington, D.C., an all-black college established by Congress in the 1870s, and led at that time by a remarkable black lawyer named Charles Hamilton Houston, who was the mentor and teacher of virtually every black civil rights lawyer in this country during the first two-thirds of this century. Marshall graduated at the top of his class, although in the 1930s, his class only consisted of six students because three-quarters of them had to drop out because of the Great Depression. But Marshall went on, became a lawyer for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, and became its general counsel in 1938. Between 1938 and 1961, Thurgood Marshall led the campaign against racial segregation in this country, particularly in the public schools. Now I want to tell you a bit, and I'm going to compress what I say, because I want to take you on a, a verbal tour of five communities. As I said, there was the Brown case was actually five separate cases. It was Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. But there were also cases from Clarendon County, South Carolina, Prince Edward County, Virginia, Washington, D.C., and Newcastle County, Delaware, where I went to school. And I want to tell you a little bit about what these communities were like back in 1950 when these cases began. And I'll start with the case that Thurgood Marshall first filed to challenge segregation in public schools in the South. And this was in Clarendon County, South Carolina. In 1950, Clarendon County was 70% black. The average black adult had gone to four years of school. Over a third of them, in fact, were totally illiterate. The average family income was only $800 a year, and virtually all of the blacks worked as sharecroppers for white plantation owners. This is in the cotton country of South Carolina. And they decided, beginning in 1947, led by a remarkable black minister, Reverend J.A. Delane, that they were going to challenge segregation. This was, in fact, a very risky thing to do in the Deep South back then. And Thurgood Marshall came to Somerton to meet with these black parents. And he said, look, I'm not going to take this case or even file it unless there are at least 20 of you who are willing to sign the petition to spread the risk of retaliation. And it took eight months to get 20 parents to sign a petition filed in federal court challenging segregation in the county schools. And in fact, as soon as the suit was filed, there was retaliation. Virtually every one of the 20 black families uh, lost their farms, lost their jobs, lost their homes. The lead plaintiff in the case, a man named Harry Briggs, who had five kids in the public schools, was a Navy veteran of World War II. He worked in a gas station in Somerton owned by the mayor. And the mayor 
fired him on Christmas Eve, handed him a carton of cigarettes, and said, Harry, you can't work here anymore. And his wife Eliza was fired from her job as a motel chambermaid. Every other plaintiff lost their bank credit, lost their farms, lost their homes. Reverend Delane's home was burned to the ground, and he had to leave the state for good. That's what it was like just two generations ago. Now, moving up from South Carolina, the next case was filed in Prince Edward County, Virginia. That's a picture of the county high school for whites in 1950, school much like the one I went to and like the white kids went to in Clarendon County. Here's the school that the black kids went to, Robert Moton High School. In fact, it was basically just pine wood and tar paper shacks. No indoor plumbing, no indoor heating, no blackboards, no desks, and hand-me-down textbooks. And what's remarkable about Prince Edward County is that the suit against segregation was actually started by the students themselves. The very first strike against segregated education in 1951, led by a 16-year-old girl named Barbara Johns, who called her fellow students together one day in, the, in an assembly in the auditorium and said, we're going on strike. And they took picket signs and walked down to the courthouse in Farmville, Virginia, where the Board of Education was located, and said, we want a better school. And they said, we don't have any money to give you a better school. And so they contacted the NAACP and its lawyers filed a suit on their behalf. Now, the third case began in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And it involved a school called the John Philip Sousa Junior High School. That's a picture of it. In 1950, it was a brand new building in southeast Washington, D.C. All of the students in this school were white. And a very uh, determined black man, a barber named Gardner Bishop, took a group of 11 black kids to that school into the principal's office and asked that they be enrolled. And they were turned away. And so they were all sent to the all-black schools in Washington, D.C. Um, there's an ironic story about John Philip Sousa School that I'll tell you a bit later. But at any rate, this is the school that they wanted to go to. And then the fourth case, as I said, was from Newcastle County, Delaware. Now, the school that was directly involved in this case, called the Clayton Colored School, That's the Clayton Colored School in Delaware. And the final case from Topeka, Kansas, involved what was called the Monroe School, which is right here. And as you can see, it's, it's not a wooden shack. The ironic thing about Topeka, Kansas, is that in the entire state of Kansas, which, of course, was not a southern state, was not part of the Confederacy. In the entire state of Kansas, there were only four schools that were segregated. And these were all grade schools in Topeka, which is the state capital. And these schools were, in fact, virtually equal in quality 
to the white elementary schools. Linda Brown and her sister Cheryl uh, attended this school, and their father, Oliver Brown, joined a lawsuit to protest the segregation. Not on the ground that the schools were unequal in quality, but simply the fact that their kids were segregated and had to travel farther distances to their schools. Linda, in fact, Linda and Cheryl uh, could have attended the Sumner School, which was only three blocks from their house, but they had to go to the Monroe School, which was a mile and a half away. So we have these five cases, South Carolina, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Delaware, and Kansas, representing a cross-section of the country, small rural towns, big cities, um, the, the border states of Delaware, northern state of Kansas. But they reflected the fact that in 17 states of this country, all of the public schools were segregated by law. And as you know, Thurgood Marshall led the lawyers who challenged this on the ground that the doctrine of separate but equal violated the Constitution. And also because, as he said, separate can never be equal. That is, segregation is per se inequality. It is the stigma of being separated from other kids simply because of your race that violates the Constitution. And in fact, when the Supreme Court decided Brown versus Board of Education, Chief Justice Warren's opinion did not mention the schools. In fact, he said the schools in these cases have been or are being equalized. But that was not the point. In fact, the schools for black kids could be as good as or even better than the schools for white kids. The reason it violated the Constitution was because segregation imposed a stigma on the kids who were being separated. In a way, Chief Justice Warren said, will affect their hearts and minds in a way that is unlikely ever to be undone. And so the Supreme Court made a promise in the Brown case of equal educational opportunity. Now, the conclusion of the book I wrote is that that promise has been broken. And it was broken, in fact, almost immediately, a year after the first Brown case was decided. The Supreme Court decided Brown II in 1955. And this is the decision that said that Southern officials could proceed toward integrating their schools with what the court called all deliberate speed. Well, what did this mean? It's sort of an oxymoron. Speed means, speed means going fast. Deliberate means take your time. And Southern officials decided not only to take their time, but as one of them said, all deliberate speed can mean two years or 200 years. And he obviously preferred the latter. And so what happened as a result of the Supreme Court decision was that all across the South, resistance to integration grew to the point where there were riots in cities across the South. There was massive resistance the schools in Prince Edward County, for example, were shut down for five years. There were no public schools to avoid integration. All the white students went to a private academy that was tax-funded. The black kids had no schools at all. 
we witnessed in 1957, and I recall this because I was a high school student at the time, the riots in the streets of Little Rock, Arkansas, when Governor Faubus called out National Guard troops to keep nine black students from entering Central High School in Little Rock. And it took the 101st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army to get them into that school. But the schools, again, were closed down for an entire year. Now, my point is that this resistance to integration was largely a response to the Supreme Court's invitation to the southern states to delay and drag their feet and resist integration by any means. And one of the consequences is that millions of white parents across the country, particularly after Little Rock, which was televised uh, all across the country, began to associate integration with turmoil and violence. And they decided they didn't want their kids to go to school with black kids, which might cause trouble. And so there began in the 1960s and increasing through the 1970s the phenomenon of white flight. During the decade of 1970 to 1980, 10 million white families left the cities and fled to the suburbs. Not all of them, but many of them, motivated by wanting to keep their kids out of schools, which might be subject to turmoil and violence. And in fact, the Supreme Court decision that allowed busing as a remedy for desegregation was resisted so violently. There were riots in cities like Boston, most of them northern cities, uh, where I lived at the time that the Supreme Court changed its mind in 1974 and ruled that busing could not take place outside of center city school districts. So what we have, and I want to quote to you uh, just a few sentences from Thurgood Marshall's dissent as a Supreme Court justice. He joined the court in 1967, appointed by President Lyndon Johnson, and served until 1991. But in this case, a case called Milliken versus Bradley, dealing with school busing, Marshall made a prophecy. And this is what he said, if I can find my glasses. The court had ruled five to four that students could not be bused across school district lines, although 40% of all the kids in the country were already being bused to school. And as somebody once said, it wasn't the color of the bus it was the color of the kids. And parents in suburban districts did not want black kids coming into their schools, and they didn't want their kids being bused into the center cities. And so Marshall said in his dissent, desegregation is not and was never expected to be an easy task. Racial attitudes ingrained in our nation's childhood and adolescence are not quickly thrown aside in its middle years. But just as the inconvenience of some cannot be allowed to stand in the way of the rights of others, so public opposition, no matter how strident, cannot be permitted to divert this court from the enforcement of the constitutional principles at issue in this case. Today's holding, I fear, is more a reflection of a perceived public mood, that is, the riots over busing, that we have gone far enough in enforcing the Constitution's guarantee 
of equal justice than it is the product of neutral principles of law. In the short run, it may seem to be the easier course to allow our great metropolitan areas to be divided up each into two cities, one white, the other black. But it is a course, I predict, our people will ultimately regret. I dissent. Now that decision marked a turning point because after the Millican decision in 1974, the integration of American public schools began to fall back to the earlier days. And in fact, the Supreme Court in three decisions in 1990, 91, and 95 ruled that school districts could go back to the old system of neighborhood schools. They did not have to take any affirmative action toward integrating their schools. And in fact, the Supreme Court lifted all of the judicial decrees that had led to integration. And so every year since 1988, that's 15 years now, every year since 1988, segregation of our schools has increased. Today, for example, in the 25 largest school districts in this country, there's not a single one with a white majority. In fact, in many of our big cities, Washington, D.C., 96% of the students are black. Detroit, 95%. New Orleans, 95%. In these cities, there are no white students. But in every one of the metropolitan areas surrounding these 25 districts, there is a white majority. And in fact, the percentage of black kids in these suburban districts is about 2%. So we have now what Thurgood Marshall predicted in our great metropolitan areas, two cities, one white and one black. Now what's the consequence of this? And I want to spend uh, just a few minutes before I open it up to questions, making what I think for some people will be a provocative statement. We have returned to the Jim Crow system in this country. For example, last year, 40% of all the African American kids in this country attended schools that were 90% or more black. That's Jim Crow education. There has never been a single year in which a majority of the black kids in this country attended schools that were majority white. And the consequence of this has been an increase every year since 1988. Remember I said every year since 88, the segregation has increased. That is the racial isolation in our schools. And in every year since 1988, and I don't think it's coincidental, the gap in achievement, academic achievement, as measured by tests in every state, the SAT, the ACT, and every other standardized test, and I'm not the biggest fan of standardized testing, but it's the benchmark by which decisions are made about the future of kids, particularly in going to college. Every year since 1988, the racial gap has widened. Last year, for example, the gap on SAT scores between white and black students in the country as a whole was over 200 points. White students averaged 1,026 points on the SAT, black students 798. 
and that gap has been widening every single year. And in most of the big cities in this country where most of the black kids go to school, and I'm not neglecting here by intent, Hispanic students as well. For example, in our public schools in this country, there are 53 million students in elementary and, and high schools. 17% um, of them are African American, but 15% of them are Hispanic. There are 9 million African American kids, 8 million Hispanic kids out of 53 million. There are 2 million who are Asian, um, about 300,000 who are Native American. But it's primarily the black kids in our big cities, and in most big cities, increasingly Hispanic kids as well, who go to schools that are incredibly inferior in quality. Incredibly inferior. And I've been spending time over the last three or four years visiting these schools, like Frederick Douglass High School in Baltimore last week. And in every one of these schools, there is a noticeable lack of uh, spirit, lack of enthusiasm on the part of these kids. It's what I call the culture of resignation. But it's really not their fault. These are kids who start out in preschool and kindergarten virtually equal, white and black. But by the time they wind up in high school, every year from ninth grade to twelfth grade, the gap gets increasingly large. So that the average African American student in this country who graduates from high school, keeping in mind that a third of them will never graduate, those who graduate from high school test at an eighth grade educational level. And that means for the vast majority of them there are no realistic prospects of achievement beyond low-paid low-skilled jobs. Now, there are obviously exceptions. Some of them are here at UCSD and at other colleges and universities. Kids who even went to bad schools, but who, by virtue of uh, determination, intelligence, the desire, the contribution of their parents, did succeed. But for most of these kids, they're on a treadmill, and they're not going anywhere. Now, I submit that this is a national crisis. It's a crisis, in fact, that affects a very large portion of our population. And I have a proposal to make, and I haven't made this proposal before, so um, I'd very much appreciate your reaction to it. After World War II, the Allied victory over Germany and Japan and the other Axis countries, this country engaged upon a reconstruction project designed to rebuild the economies and the societies of these defeated countries, a measure of tremendous generosity by the American people. And it was called the Marshall Plan, after General George Marshall, who commanded U.S. troops in World War II. And we spent billions of dollars restoring Germany and Japan, countries in which most of their big cities had been literally destroyed by our bombing. 
And in many of the big cities in this country as well, as you see when you go into the ghettos of places like Chicago and St. Louis and Detroit, Baltimore, Atlanta, New Orleans, they're literally destroyed. That is, the whole infrastructure of these cities is crumbling in these largely black areas. So what I'm proposing is another Marshall Plan called the Thurgood Marshall Plan. And what it would do is to set aside $87 billion of the federal budget. I just picked that number out of the air. Seemed a good one. <laughs> That's what we're going to spend to reconstruct another country that we have destroyed. But to take $87 billion of the federal budget and put it in to the 50 largest school districts in this country. And in every one of these 50 largest school districts, there's a majority of students of color, either African American or Hispanic or both. And so each school district would wind up with roughly $1.5 billion. Now, how that money would be appropriated and utilized, whether in building new schools or improving those that already exist or hiring more competent teachers, um, I would leave up to the people in each community. But it's a plan, I think, that is essential, or some version of it, to rescue millions of kids from lives that have no promise, where they'll never achieve the American dream. So I think, in a sense, that the broken promise of the Brown decision can, in fact, be redeemed. But it can only be redeemed if we have a collective national will to achieve this goal. Not to leave behind as a generational cycle of poverty, illiteracy, poor health, and crime a substantial number of our citizens. And I think when I reflect back on this that my ancestors arrived in this country in 1630. That was pretty early. In fact, it was right after the Mayflower in 1620. But African Americans came to this country as slaves even earlier in 1619. And for almost 400 years, they have been treated as second-class citizens. And to think that in simply two generations since Brown was decided, that we can reverse and undo the legacy of Jim Crow and slavery, I think is unrealistic. It's going to take several more generations if we, in fact, can achieve that goal of equality, what the Supreme Court called equal educational opportunity. And that's a challenge that I would put to you as you think about this and as you become active citizens, which I'm sure you are already, but more active citizens, and particularly when you become parents, those of you who will, thinking about their kids. And so the Thurgood Marshall plan, I think, if it starts here at Thurgood Marshall College, and I'll keep making this proposal as I travel around the country in the next year or so to see if people will accept that challenge. But I give that challenge first to you, and I hope you will carry it out. Thank you very much.
Well, the question is whether all this money that I proposed, $87 billion just as a figure, it may, be, may take a lot more than that, would be enough in new school buildings and teacher salaries and, and uh, expanded curriculums to instill desire in the kids in these schools? That's a good question because it's obviously not just a matter of money. You can pour any amount of money into a program of any kind. But if the people who um, are involved in that program are supposedly the beneficiaries of it, don't respond to it, um, then it's useless. Now, where do you get desire? One of the things that I've that I found, and this is going to be a little lengthier answer than simple yes or no, because it's a very complex question, is um, how do you get, how do you instill desire in kids to excel? Most of you, of course, have that desire. Your parents had that desire for you, in many cases going back generations. But, and most kids who enter school in the early grades have that desire. I mean, all you have to do is go into a classroom with um, first and second grade students, and you see, I mean, they are, you know, they're, they're very active and eager kids. Um, I'm speaking a little bit from personal experience. I have a daughter who's eight years old now who's African American. Uh, we adopted her when she was one day old. Her name is Maya Grace, and she's a remarkable kid. But I often think about what would have happened, not that we rescued Maya because her birth mother, in fact, wanted us to adopt her, but what her life would be like if she'd grown up in her birth family. A single mother living in poverty with three other kids, no job skills, going to a public school in Oakland, California, which is not the highest ranking school system in the country. Where would Maya be now in her academic achievement? With her native intelligence and desire my guess is that if she continued in those schools by the time she got to the 9th, 10th, 11th grade, the desire would be literally evaporated. And why is that? And I think a lot of it has to do with the legacy of Jim Crow. That is, 90% of all the African-American kids in this country who live in poverty, that is, which is half of them, below the federal poverty level, live in single-parent homes, largely female-headed households. Now, there's nothing wrong with that except that these women have to work so hard, most of them at two jobs. Welfare, for many of them, is no longer an option. It's been eliminated. They have to work so hard, most of them have educational limitations. The majority of them never finished high school. And so what their kids are left with is, is a lack of that cultural capital that those of us who live in the middle class, particularly white people, take as a matter of course to give to our kids, to instill in them. Now that's not to say that kids who live in poverty can't have desire to learn. But it's hard to maintain that desire when day after day, year after year, you live in an environment where the neighborhood around you is crumbling. It's infested with crime, poverty, drug use, and a lack of public facilities, libraries, cultural events. And so 
It's like Langston Hughes once said. And um, where's Cecil? Where'd he go? Oh, there he is. Maybe you can quote it for me better or somebody here can. What Langston Hughes once said about the dream deferred eventually dries up like a raisin in the sun. You take a healthy, ripe, full of juice, grape, and it turns into a dried up raisin. Now that maybe isn't the best analogy, but it's what I'm trying to get across. That desire is something that has to be maintained, has to be, has to be fed. And it's hard to maintain it and feed it in the kind of environment that so many of these kids live in. Thank you again.